0: You found us through Fly Fishing, you'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast.
1: Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap.
0: Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and and hunt those.
1: The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out and the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not gonna clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing.
0: Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests. Follow us on Instagram and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Matt? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for putting this one together today. Um, I first heard about you just recently. Um, I haven't heard much red eye bass. I'm sure for people down in the neck of the woods where you're at, it's probably uh, pretty common. Um, I don't know anything about this species or the fishing, so we're going to talk red eye bass today, and uh, and put a focus on some of the conservation efforts um, that are out there because we're doing this cool event and uh, we're doing a trip that's all about you know basically you know fishing but also conservation. So start us first. How did you get into the conservation world with the groups you work with, and then how did this love this passion for red eye bass start?
1: It's an interesting story because um, when I went to school. My focus was on becoming a medical doctor. And when that door was uh, essentially closed for me, I started looking into other possibilities and kind of went down the research uh, path. But I, I focused mostly on human genetics. So I worked for close to a decade uh, doing cancer research and also Parkinson's disease research and through that, my outlet was always fishing, and uh, particularly fly fishing. And so, I spent most of my time up in the Smoky Great Smoky Mountain National Park fishing for brook trout, backcountry you know type fishing. I just really loved to to get away. I like the intimacy of the you know the smaller streams, and just the you know knowing that I was catching a native fish that had evolved in that environment meant a lot. To me, that was something that was important to me to to interact with as opposed to, you know, high tree reared fish that was stocked there. And so over time, I, uh, you know, began to branch out and try other, you know, fly fishing for other species, did some saltwater fly fishing, started expanding into the freshwater scene, chasing bass and different panfish. And one of my friends actually said something to me. You know, he's like, as much as you love brook trout, I can't believe you're not, you've never fly fished for red-eye bass. And, uh, you know, of course I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? And I grew up in Alabama where red-eye bass are very, very uh, abundant. And I'd never heard of them. And, but I mean, granted, I grew up in South Alabama. Red-eye bass are found, you know, more central to Northern Alabama. So they weren't exactly in my backyard, but they were still in my state and I'd never heard of them. So I started pursuing that fish, uh, on the fly and was just really kind of taken back by how similar it is to fly fishing for brook trout. They live in, you know, similar type environments, small headwater type streams, lots of waterfalls and, you know, flowing clear water, a lot of rock, bedrock, cobblestone bottom and, uh, bedrock ledges and big boulders, things like that. It was just a, it was a very easy transition, but. I guess it resonated more with me because it was it was local, uh it was native to, you know, my home state. And I didn't have to travel as far to do it. And so I, I just fell in love with it and, you know, it was continued to be kind of the outlet for me to get away from from work and stress from, you know, all that part of my life. And I became frustrated because there wasn't much information out there on this fish. You know, we didn't know. Like, when do they spawn? What do they eat? Where all do they live? You know, there was just, no one had ever really looked into it. And so the only thing that was out there is just, you know, somebody's grandpa (laughs) had been catching those, you know, since he was a kid and what, you know, people catch them, but they don't really think much about it. You know, it's just like, oh, it's a cool little bass. And so I began to try to, you know, using my research background, I started digging into the scientific literature to try to understand everything that we did know about the species that maybe just had not reached the general public, and I did find a lot more information through doing that, and so I, I began to compile that information, and also my love of fishing for them started kind of putting together an article that I wanted to write for a magazine. And the more information I compiled, and the more I did it, I you know started thinking, well, maybe this could be, maybe this could be a book. It would be a short book, but it could be a book, and so uh, I just started, you know, writing and putting down my experiences and pursuing these fish and you know some of the tactics that I use and considerations for tackle and you know all the the things you you do when you write a a book about how to fly fish for a certain species and um, so I eventually wrote that book in 2018 is when it released. In doing that book and writing that book it opened a world to me that i was totally unaware of not just about red eye bass but about the the environments in which they live the streams where they're found you know there were some serious kind of ecological concerns and conservation concerns about not only red eye bass but you know also the habitats that they depend on and that led me to actually come back to auburn university where i am currently to do my phd actually getting to study these fish and do kind of a genetic assessment across their home range on where peer populations exist and where they might be hybridizing with other fish which is something we can get into more later if you want and it it really kind of shed a lot of light that you know these fish have some serious conservation needs that we just weren't aware of because no one was no one was looking. So I've been able to kind of marry my, my personal passion in fly fishing for these, these fish with my professional interest in using genetics to better inform fisheries conservation management.
0: It's been, you know, a crazy ride for the last five years. Wow. Five years. That's amazing. So and, uh, and I want to dig more into the red-eye bass and some of the questions I have there. I want to bring it back. You mentioned kind of the human genetics, uh, and now you've got a PhD, right? You've taken this turn. What do you, you know, compare that? You were kind of in that world of the human, uh, you know, genetics and going on that track to now with fisheries. Is there a big difference uh, between kind of the, the two lines?
1: Um, not really. Uh, we like to joke that, you know, they're all A's and C's and G's and T's right. behind the computer screen. So the biggest difference is it's a little bit slower, more relaxed pace in the fisheries world compared to the human medicine world. Very, you know, competitive, you have lots, a lot more funding and things like that in the human genetics world. But, you know, the things that we're doing, the genetic tests that we're developing to diagnose species purity or hybridization in fish is really kind of just now catching up to what we've been doing for years in human medicine and disease diagnosis and genetic risk for certain diseases. I mean, all those, those processes and pathways are very similar. It's just what question you're asking, you know? And so it's, it's been a very easy transition for me because I was already doing things that are just now kind of becoming
0: more prevalent in fisheries science Quick word from our sponsor, Stonefly Nets is producing some of the sweetest custom nets you'll see on the market right now. Find out what everyone is talking about and take a look at some of these super classic wood nets right now. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly to get your custom net today. That's wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y to get started right now. So this is, this is awesome. And uh, we're starting out here. Good. We've got the genetics. Talk about red-eye bass. You know, you, you probably have, I'm guessing more knowledge than most people in the country. What, um, you know, distribution wise, like how widely distributed are they? And then are there other species that are very similar that are all in other areas around the country?
1: Yeah. So they um, we know a good bit now, uh, we know what streams they're native in. We don't know exactly how far they range within all those systems. We've done some pretty thorough surveys through, you know, my research and and some others, but they're they're restricted to the southeastern United States as far as their native range. So they exist in mostly in Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, in a little sliver of Tennessee, and like the tiniest little uh, blurb in North Carolina, and you know, in those river systems, we determined over the last really decade that each river system actually has its own species of red-eye bass. So these aren't subspecies or, you know, anything like that, like you see with cutthroat trout. These are, you know, actual species level differences.
0: So these would be like the difference between, say, a rainbow trout and a brown trout.
1: Exactly. Yep. And so... You know, I can look at a a red-eye bass and tell you what stream it came from just looking at the fish. But also along with those, you know, morphological differences that are diagnosable across species, there's also quite a bit of genetic difference between them. And so, you know, we can look at them that way too. And so combining the two, it kind of meets those standards and qualifications required to split things into to different species as far as similarities you know the closest to fish that would you know the one that people are probably most familiar with are smallmouth bass they're very similar to smallmouth in that they you know they do show some association with current and in rocky habitat they don't get nearly as big so a red eye bass will max out typically around 12 inches. It's rare that they even achieve that. Uh, Most, your average fish that you're going to catch while fishing for them are probably going to be, you know, that eight to 10 inch range. So a 12 inch is like a true trophy. Yeah. And so they don't get as big. The other fish that is also very endemic to a, a small region in the U.S. is the shoal bass, which are found in the Apalachicola River system. Mostly in Georgia, they have a little bit of a range in, in North Florida, uh, but they also are, you know, kind of stream specialists. So they, they hold very close to current and waterfalls and, uh, things like that. They also get big. I mean, they get as big as smallmouth do, but red-eyed bass are totally different in that they just, they don't get very big and they're typically in the headwaters, um, the upper reaches of these river systems rather than the, the middle, reaches and lower reaches, like small mouth and shoal bass will be.
0: Gotcha. So, and then what keeps the, you know, like you look at smallmouth bass, how they're just kind of distributed everywhere. It seems like, um, I mean, what keeps these fish way up high? Is it like a temperature thing or a habitat thing? Why, why are they not down in those lower big water?
1: I think it's a combination of both. We don't really know for sure, but, you know, just looking at certain associations and things like that with the data that we have. They tend to prefer those um, cooler, clear streams with at least moderate flow, which is typically found in you know upland environments. So above the fall line in these states is kind of the demarcation point. I mean, they're not below the fall line, so they're above the fall line.
0: Yeah, what's the fall line? Remind us again what that is. So the fall line is... Um,
1: so there's just different physiographic provinces that states have. And in Alabama, there's a lot of them. So it's where the Piedmont geological habitat meets the coastal plain habitat. And the point where those that transition occurs from the Piedmont to the coastal plain is, is called the fall line. And so there's a, you know, kind of a drop in elevation.
0: Oh, I see. Would that be near like Piedmont, um, Alabama or roughly? In that yes, yeah.
1: yes close to that area. And you know, it's not it's not a I mean the the fall line can be a mile or more long. Oh yeah.
0: Or, or wide, you know. So Gotcha. That's cool. That's cool. So basically it's Alabama, you know, or most of those, you know, southern southeastern states, they have a spot in on the this fall line where the everything's breaking towards the ocean versus breaking towards like Tennessee. Is that kind of what you're talking about? yep And above
1: the fall line, you've got a lot more of that you know, Piedmont and Ridge and Valley type underlying geology. So there's just a lot more. I mean, these are the foothills of the Appalachian right. Mountains. You know, got that underlying geology that provides the rocky habitat, the elevation change that leads to a lot of the waterfalls and and things like that. So. It, It's a really unique environment. And most people, you know, if I were to show you a picture of some of the streams, people would probably think it's in Tennessee or North Carolina in the Smoky Mountains. But they're in fact, you know, Alabama and Georgia, South Carolina have a lot of those type streams.
0: Yeah, gotcha. Nice. Okay. So that gives us a little perspective on the fish. They're pretty narrow. Like you said, there's a few states, four or five states kind of in that part of the world. And then for you, the fishing so, you got into it for it sounds like the genetics, the research, but talk about the fishing a little bit. Is the fishing just as fun? I mean, when you hear people with smallmouth bass, a lot of people always say, like, hey, that's their number one fish out of all the fish in the world. You know, I know Courier, you know, has talked about that. Are these fish as exciting as catching a smallmouth bass? Oh, absolutely. I mean,
1: I think you have to adjust your expectations because of the size difference. You know, you're not going to hook into a three, four pound red eye. Yeah. But what they lack in size, they really make up for with their aggression. They're really aggressive top water eaters. They don't, I mean, they're not picky at all. Um, so very much like brook trout, you know, brook trout, you throw something on the water, they're going to eat it. The streams they live in are not super productive. And so they can't necessarily afford to, you know, let a meal go by. So they're opportunistic predators. They're ambush predators. They're already tuned in to kind of eating on on the surface of the water due to the abundance of aquatic and terrestrial insects that are found there, and so they're an absolute blast on a fly rod because they fight hard once hooked. They don't really jump a whole lot. They do jump, but they they typically jump when they eat the fly, so they eat it kind of you know on yeah. a jump, oh, and nice. then when they go back in you know in the water, they just kind of bulldog you. And so it's it's a blast. I mean you you downsize your your gear. So I typically pursue red eye bass if I'm fishing specifically for them, you know, two or three weight fly rod, you know, seven, six, something like that.
0: Like a seven foot, yeah, seven six, two or three weight. Yeah. And just a little yeah. just dry line, just super simple, throw on. And then what are the what are the bugs? Like what would be a great pattern to put on there? So my favorite is a popper and I like to throw,
1: you know, chartreuse or yellow. A lot of the streams where I fish for red-eye bass, there's, there's a prevalence of mayflies and stoneflies that are, are kind of yellow. A lot of grasshoppers as well, which I think, um, they have that yellow coloration. So I, you know, it could just be a confidence color for me. I mean, I think people that fish, you know, blue and other things have uh, white, have just as much luck. I just prefer yellow, uh, any kind of foam attractor, you know, Hopper patterns, things like that, work really well.
0: Yeah, because they're not like you said. Brook trout are, are similar, where they're they don't see a lot of people. They're high in the mountains, so you put something on. There's a good chance you're going to get a fish. Are, are there are there guides? You know, people guiding for this is that is it at that level?
1: Yeah. So there's um, you know a lot of them have actually popped up in the last five years, but there is one uh, group on the Tallapoosa River, which is one of the rivers where red eye bass are native in Alabama and actually the upper reaches are in Georgia, but there's a guide, uh, service here called East Alabama fly fishing. They got on the Tallapoosa uh, using rafts and, you know, it's very similar to a trip you would experience out West on a, a trout river. It's just, you're fishing for bass and it's a, it's a really unique way to fish for them because it's one of the few river systems where red eye bass are, are kind of found in, you know, the main river. Oh, right. Environment. So that's kind of unique and, you know, they're a little bit larger because they are in that main river environment. There's a little bit more, you know, food and things like that for them. They grow a little bit larger. So they, they guide. There's also, you know, other guide services spread throughout, you know, Alabama and North Georgia that, you know, might primarily guide for shoal bass or, you know, Alabama bass or something like that. But they also offer trips for red eye bass because they just inhabit some of the same waters as some of the other target species you'll have, yeah. they're not necessarily like specifically red-eye bass guiding, but, but they do offer trips to pursue those.
0: Gotcha. This is great. So you got the guide so people can check in with the the guide service you talked about there. What is, um, you know, just thinking about the species again, I mean, how are they doing? You know, we've talked about on some of these conservation episodes and brook trout's one of those, right? We've had some people talk about how with climate change, things are not looking good, right? Um, but Talk about that with, with this species. Is that something, is there a major concern? Then also talk about the groups that you work with that are doing some good work there. There's certainly
1: concerns. I mean, they they do tend to have like some sort of, uh, you know, lower temperature requirement than other bass. So a lot of times we like to call it, you know, water too cold for other bass, but too warm for trout. So it's kind of a, a niche that they have evolved to, to occupy. So with waters warming, of course, that's, you know, probably going to have a detrimental effect on their populations one of the biggest things that we see right now well there's there's two and they they kind of compound on one another one is the uh moving of species so people stocking bass where they don't belong oh yeah and so that's a very common problem across all black bass species when you introduce a species into a water system that it doesn't belong in it tends to hybridize with the native black bass species and that hybridization just kind of continues until you know you have a watering down of whatever the native uh, species is to a point where eventually it's no longer there and so they're completely you know extirpated from that area or that stream and that's happened a lot across the range of of all black bass in the the u.s there's multiple species that are dealing with that red eye bass are no exception so the savannah river system where uh, bartrams bass which is a a certain species of red eye bass that live in the savannah river system they've had alabama bass introduced into some of the upper lakes in that river system and they've spread you know out of the lakes into the streams moved upstream into some of the tributaries and so they've they've gone everywhere and they were introduced by anglers this wasn't like a, a sanctioned you know, departmental or agency um, introduction anglers just said, "Hey, we want these fish here right. because they get bigger." <laughs> and so, what's happened is, you know, there's some serious concerns about the the long term effects on the native red eye bass populations in those systems. Similar issue in the upper Chattahoochee River system of Georgia, the Chattahoochee bass or the the red eye bass that live in the upper. River system Alabama bass have also been introduced to that system as well as smallmouth bass, and there may be another to be honest, um there's quite a few introductions that's happened in the Chattahoochee River system, and they're you know they're hybridizing not only with Chattahoochee bass but with shoal bass as well. Um, so both of those native species are experiencing some some decline due to hybridization and then the other big factor would be habitat disturbance. So a lot of these stream specialists really rely on, you know, heavy forested cover that keeps the stream cool. You've got, you know, the riparian areas are, are kind of intact due to the tree cover and the rock and things like that. So there's not a lot of erosion and sedimentation going into the water. The water stays clear even after a rain, it, you know, it clears very quickly. And so what happens when people come in and, you know, develop these areas, they, you know, the first thing they do is cut down all the trees, which leads to a lot of erosion and sedimentation, turbidity issues, uh, as the shoals and cobblestone bottoms that these fish rely on for spawning and things like that get covered up, uh, with sediment, you know, that, that affects the the reproduction of, of these fish. So they, they don't produce as many. And so over time, you know there can be decline in population coupled with the you know other things that they depend on the you know, certain mayflies or food sources also may not be tolerant to the new environment or the degradation of the previous environment so they um they disappear of course if your food disappears that doesn't help so it, it's almost like death by a thousand cuts but the, the source is the development and disturbance of these you know natural ecosystems
0: Right, right. And is there some disturbance? Is this would this be like rural residential out there, or is there actual like industrial activities going on?
1: There, so it's it's um, river system specific. So within Alabama, there are like the Cahaba River and the Black Warrior River system. Both of those are pretty close proximity to a lot of um, industrial, you know, waste and effluent that flows into those streams. There's been some really large scale fish kills over the last decade from um, like chicken processing plants and things like that. You've also got the agricultural influence that you know, may be a rural area, but there's a lot of ag development along these streams um, and tributaries of these streams. So you, know, you get a lot of nutrient pollution that affects water quality and you know oxygen, things like that you know wastewater treatment plants like there's there's all sorts of things that that come with the development um also you've got a lot of hydroelectric dams um that have been built in these systems that you know fragment these populations and kind of change the downstream
0: habitat today's episode is sponsored by Daiichi Fishing Hooks a leader in the fly fishing industry and still the world's sharpest hook Daiichi has been producing premier fishing hooks for the past 30 years, a timeless brand with a bright new future. And I have a great connection with Daiichi going back about as long as I can remember. I've tied thousands of flies using those Daiichi hooks. I've tied many dry flies, wet flies, steelhead flies on their vast assortment of hooks. Never once had an issue on strength or quality, so very excited to get the good word out right now. Tempered with carbon-rich steel, Daiichi offers superior penetration without compromising the hook's structural integrity. If you want to support this podcast and a great hook company right now who has been producing high-quality hooks longer than most, check them out right now at wetflyswing.com slash Daiichi. That's D-A-I-I-C-H-I, Daiichi. You support this podcast and local businesses by clicking through that link to Daiichi. Okay, now back to the show. Do these fish move uh, quite a bit? Is there a lot of diversity there? Like, are some of these fish just holding in a really small little section of stream?
1: We don't really know. So they've been, you know, prior to the dams being built, we didn't even know this this fish existed really. Oh, Um, right. I mean, we did, but we didn't really know anything about it. Yeah. So then the dams are built. So everything we're studying, you know, is kind of like after the fact. But we have there has been a, a couple of studies on, you know, certain species in, you know, these tellwater type systems, namely the Talapusa River, where um, you know, they've actually put tags in fish that they could acoustic tags that they could monitor them. And and they do tend to do a, a seasonal migration for spawning. You know, it ranges in distance because they're they're basically migrating into the shoal type habitat to spawn and depending on how far the shoal habitat is from where they are is how far they spawn but there's but that's the main river so you know in these smaller tributary systems we don't really know are they year round residents or is there also a, a migration that happens Gotcha um so that's an interesting thing to look
0: Yeah are they spawning in Talk about the spawning a little bit. Was that when, you know, maybe you can run through the life history a little bit on them. When are they spawning and kind of run through that a little bit?
1: Yeah, so they're similar to most bass. They they spawn in the spring um, as the water temps start to warm. We don't know the exact you know, threshold, but it's, it's probably water temperature along with, um, you know, photo period that triggers the spawning of these fish. They do tend to show some sort of upstream migration in order to spawn. You know, it's the it's the classic bass scenario where the the male builds a nest and the female chooses which male to you know mate with. They the female lays their eggs, the male fertilizes them. So you've got external fertilization. So that's one oh, reason yeah. mentioned that hybridization can happen
0: a lot. Oh right, right. Because there are there are mixed. There's multiple species in these areas spawning right and they're closely enough related that they they
1: can actually produce viable offspring
0: and just like a like we said with trout it's kind of a similar like you talk about the hybrids right same thing there's all sorts of trout hybrid species out there
1: yes and so so that's you know they the male guards the nest after the eggs hatch even kind of guards the fry for a little while and then you know kind of they move off and the fry their thing so
0: wow that's it so and, uh, so this is good. So not too much different. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, they're basically a very similar species to a smallmouth bass. Like you said, just a lot, just smaller. And so I want to move just quickly to, um, you know, we connected through, um, the guys at like airflow dorsal talk about that. How did you run into, um, you know, cause we're doing this little event here. Um, and there's some videos, maybe, maybe you can shed light on that, the video production. Do you know much about that? So I, I've had a dream for a while to
1: you know, a, as I've watched the F3T events and IF4 events over the, you know, last decade, you know, there's only so many videos I can watch of, you know, tarpon and fish, <laughs> right. trout.
0: Yeah. How do you make them different? Yeah. How do you make yeah. them different as a producer? Yeah. It's like, there's so many
1: other species out there that we really should be highlighting because they're really fun to catch on the fly, but they're also like, they need some awareness, you know, people will know.
0: Well, and I think that, you know, the one thing people don't think about, it works with everything, right? If you can catch the fish, if you have fun with it, if you can eat it, people love it, right? But right. all the ones that you can't, right? But the, the thing is with nature is the more diverse, you know, these natural populations and communities are, the healthier the ecosystem, right? Is that kind of how you look at this?
1: Yes. Yeah. So you want a, you know, heterogeneous environments are a lot more diverse than, you know, something where there's just like a monoculture of one thing. And so I've had this idea for a long time that I wanted to see a red-eye bass film on one of these film tours, but I didn't really, I mean, I'm not a videographer or producer. And so I I kind of pitched the idea to a few different, you know, local conservation type groups that do some film series and things like that. And it just never really took off. And then I just happened to get connected to uh, the dorsal outdoors guys, uh, Ben Meadows and George Constantine they had already produced several F3T films and IF4 films, and they had a mutual interest in doing something to highlight Alabama and, you know, the fly fishing here and the conservation issues here. And, you know, it was like really, you know, providential that we met because (laughs) it was like all right, well, I can really show you what red eye bass fly fishing is all about. And that, crosses you know all the checks all the boxes for what you're wanting to do and it helps me get the word out about this unique fishery and so you know they pitched the idea to orvis who was the sponsor of the film and they liked it so orvis sponsored the film you know outfitted us in all of our our gear and and fly rods and things and so we went and spent a summer shooting the film while fishing for for red-eye bass and the film was kind of centered around a local artist in Birmingham, Mary Beth Meeks, that does some really cool like fish print um, art. And myself trying to catch all four species of red eye bass that are found in Alabama in one day. And so, you know, the idea was it's fun because you're, you know, it's almost like a can you do it? But like the real accomplishment, and, and I think most people are, that do this, you know, experience this. The real accomplishment is you, you really interact with these different ecosystems and these waters where red-eye bass are native and you interact with red-eye bass and you, you just, you get an up close and personal feel of like, well, this is a really cool thing. Like I should, I should protect this, you yeah. know? And so that's the real accomplishment. But we did, when I released my book back in 2018. Yeah. What was that book again? It reminds again the name of the book. So it's called fly fishing for red eye bass, um, an adventure across southern waters. And when I released that book, a uh, friend Jonathan Kelly and myself were talking about ways to you know get people excited about fishing for these fish. I mean, the book was a guide and also very informative as far as you know conservation challenges and things like that. But also, like how do we go to the next level? And so we came up with this idea of a red eye slam where people can catch either all four species that are in Alabama or all seven species across the Southeast. And, you know, we had an artist, um, do the certificates that are, you know, custom created, very beautiful certificates. And if people complete that in one calendar year, then we gave them a certificate. I mean, there's no cost, nothing like that. We just wanted people to, to be excited about it. Um, and it was pretty successful. We had a lot of people Try to do it. Not many people did it, but some did, and it's kind of grown. Um, and so Mary Beth, that I mentioned is, that was in the film with me, she's doing the certificates now. She created those, and that you know that was kind of the the focus for the film was you know we're doing something that that you can go do.
0: Right, right, right. How many people have done it, or not? How many people have done? It and also, what's the name of the film?
1: So the name of the film is a slam that saves. Um, it was in this this past year's um international fly fishing film festival the i have for shown all over the, the world which is kind of cool
0: so i have the trailer here yeah we'll put a we'll either get the video in the show notes or put the trailer to that in the show notes and as well as well as your book and everything else we talked about so people can just click through uh, my my other question was on the number of people like how many people have completed this slam say the the easier one the four i guess four in alabama or is it, is it just a handful of people
1: no so we've had i think um probably around 40 oh nice do the uh, the mobile basin um, probably only 10 maybe 12 have done the uh, all seven species across the southeast because it's a little bit more of a challenge than people think I mean the hard part of these fish it isn't catching them it's it's finding them right and getting access to their water because it's not this isn't roadside pull-offs and you know in some cases it is but in most cases it's not you know you're you're forging your own trail to get down into a canyon where these fish live. There's that adventure aspect to it, which is, is part of the fun. I think, you know, it's just, it's not what you associate with bass fishing. So it's a really unique fishery. Um, and I should, you know, the film has been received really well and it it was just, I mean, I've seen, you know, Instagram reels and things like that of this film showing all over the world, but. You know even in, in our own in the United States, seeing it shown on like jumbotrons and you know football stadiums or whatever like, man, that is so awesome. It's like a, it really is a dream come true. It's nice to to be able to sit back and think, you know where I
0: was five, six years ago, and then where we are now, right, right. So that's been a pretty big impact for you. and I guess like this right now, right? We're talking to another audience of people that probably, uh, you know, I know really well who our people are and we don't have, you know, we have people in every state, you know, in the country, but I know the Southeast is a little less, you know, lesser than some other parts. So, but yeah, people are hearing about it, right? And this is one of the things and and you're kind of, it feels like you're kind of, because the work you've done, you're up there on top of this. Are there other researchers out there, a lot of researchers that are doing similar work?
1: Not really. I mean, there's, there's a handful of people that have done work on red-eye bass um i wouldn't say that they you know have focused their career on it at all but they've been extremely impactful you know for the species and the group of species by by some of the stuff they've done so i'm not i'm not downplaying what they what they've done they've monumental papers and things like that but they just and i'm gonna discover this really soon you know funding dictates what you can do and Something like red eye bass that not many people know about and, and lives in a small little section of the U.S. is not going to generate as much interest and funding as you know steelhead or salmon or you know insert salmonid species, and so that's something that I think people like me that work in the the bass world have been kind of beating a drum for a long time that there needs to be more research because there's actually quite a bit of diversity among the black bass species and a lot of them have different conservation challenges. You know, it's not just largemouth that are, you know, exist in every single water system across the U S there's a lot of other bass that still live where they evolved to live and are kind of losing, you know, habitat and things that need some attention and some research because some of these, we don't even know the life history characteristics and you know, what if we lose them before we ever figure that out? So there, there's some, you know, that's, That's my um, soapbox for, you know, the challenges that we face in this specific realm. But you did mention, I forgot to mention earlier, you asked some of the the groups I work
0: with. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm glad you remember that. Yeah. Who are these groups that are leading the way?
1: The biggest one that I work with is um, Native Fish Coalition. So um, I joined as an advisory board member with them back in I think it was 2018 might have been 2019 because I I really liked the work they were doing with with brook trout and I thought that it was it fit really well for what I was trying to do with red-eye bass but kind of gave me a better platform to maybe do some of that and so not long after I became an advisory board member I started the first chapter of Native Fish Coalition outside of the the northeast which was an Alabama chapter and then not long after I started the Alabama chapter, we we brought up Georgia and South Carolina, and you know now it's Tennessee and Virginia and um, Arkansas is coming soon, North Carolina. So I kind of moved within that organization outside of just a state chapter chair, and so now I'm the national vice chair for the South region. So my role has um, grown to spread the message of native fish, like what we've done with brook trout in the Northeast and red eye bass. Alabama, to empower other states to establish chapters to focus on their native species, some of the unique challenges that may face them, which, I mean, obviously there's there's a lot of overlap, but there's also some unique concerns in different states. And so Native Fish Coalition has been a really great organization to, to empower people to do those things and to, to have a voice for native fish, which I think is really really great and then um, on a local level you know I, I work as an advisory board member for some like Coosa River Keepers some local river keeper organizations that do a lot of you know monitoring water quality and things like that in a lot of these systems where red eye bass live and so they're you know they they file lawsuits um, when people are discharging you know pollution without a, a permit or, or without anyone else knowing they kind of and Bring attention to that kind of stuff. So, that's the the main organizations that I work with, and um, trying to help you know grow the message of not just red eye bass, but also native fish.
0: That's cool. Yeah. So you've you've taken it. You've kind of you know you started out in your niche, and now you've expanded out. It sounds like a little bit what, on the native fish coalition. Is that a um, how wide ranging does that group go? Is that like around the whole country, or just a specific part of the the region?
1: Yeah. So it, it is a national nonprofit but it's relatively new i think it started in 2007 again mostly in the northeast to you know champion the cause of, of brook trout and you know a lot of the the non native you know rainbow trout and brown trout that were stocked on top of brook trout populations and it's you know it's a native fish centric organization so it's not a it's not a sport fishing you know organization so what matters to us is is really what the fish need Habitat wise and water quality wise, and you know, in order for them to persist and go on in their native habitat. And so the focus is a little bit different than other organizations. Um, And so it kind of spread throughout the Northeast, and then now it's kind of growing across the Southeast. Um, It's moving westward and it's also moving westward in the North. So it's grown from just a handful of chapters to I think almost 20 or 22 now. Um, and continuing to grow. So we're, we're expanding rapidly, but it is a national organization and, you know, we're working hard to increase that footprint, you know, across the U S but it's been, you know, it's been a really great organization and um, allowed me a lot of opportunities to to work with people from, from other States that, um, you know, I, I can share my experience and my knowledge and help them apply you know, some of the things that we've been able to do here to their state. So it's been really, really fun.
0: Right on. That is cool. Yeah, it sounds awesome. So, yeah, we've uh, had a few uh, episodes on the podcast where we've uh, chatted. When like you said, one of them we had, we talked about brook trout up north, like you said. And that was, it was pretty cool because the guest we had on really talked about how, you know, he had more of a positive message, even though there's some issues with brook trout. You know, it wasn't like the doom and gloom, like, you know, they're going extinct tomorrow is more like, Hey, there's some things we can do right now. Like, um, you know, control the other invasive fish, things like that. What are the easy things like right now, if somebody's down somewhere listening right now, what's an easy thing they can do to help support, you know, like we talked about the red eye bass, if we want to take it really narrow or just, you know, things that are going on in your part of the world. Sure. Um, I think the biggest thing is just educating
1: people on the dangers of, of moving fish around, you know, all bass are not the same. And so you can't just take bass from one water and and move them somewhere else because whatever your desired outcome is may not happen I mean a lot of people have moved bass around because they get big say in you know their native habitat in Alabama and then they go stock them up in some lake in North Carolina and what happens is they they outcompete the native fish and, and hybridize them out of existence but they don't grow very big because you know the temperatures get a lot cooler up there And so you're left with a, a totally invasive, fish that doesn't get as big as you thought it would and so the you know that's catastrophic impact and that could all be solved by just not moving fish so that's the biggest thing is educating anglers on the dangers associated with moving fish where they don't belong the other thing is is getting involved with organizations like native fish coalition and your your local river keepers and you know the people that are actually monitoring and and doing boots on the ground work
0: yeah, like actually, vol like getting involved in some of these groups, you can volunteer, get out there on the ground.
1: Correct. So that's the other thing. Um, really, the other stuff is it's higher level policy type things, you know, that's requiring that will require changes, you know, legislative type changes to how we manage our waterways and how we protect our waterways, and you know, that's that's a constant battle. That's huge.
0: Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's why the river keeper, you know, and I don't know all the background, but I mean, that's why those groups are so critical because, you know, they're able, they have attorneys, right? And they are able to, things get bad. And, you know, you hate to go down the, you know, the, the attorney route, right? That's like the, almost like the (laughs) nuclear option. But, you know, when things happen, you know, that's an option, you got a card, you got to pull. And so that's why the river keepers, I know that, you know, they have all sorts of stories around the country where these polluted rivers you know, they called them out. And, um, and so I think it is an amazing group. I look forward to getting more of, uh, their staff on as well. Let's take it out here, Matt, real quick. Um, this is our segment. This is our like fly shop, uh, segment, uh, shout out here. So I want to give a shout out to a local fly shop. You have, you mentioned one there, but this is presented by anglers coffee today and anglers. If you haven't checked out anglers, um, They're awesome. They're actually up on in the West Coast, but uh, Joe is making some killer blends. He's got his Muddler blend. He's got all these different uh, coffee blends. So shout out to English Coffee first before we get into this. Now give us a shout out to um, Fly Shop. Like you mentioned, I think one guide. Are there any shops locally near you that you love or, you know, you frequent in there?
1: Yes. So uh, Deep South Outfitters is in Birmingham, Alabama. So centrally located in the state, you know, kind of a one-stop shop if you want to go fly fish out on the west coast or in another country you know they have the knowledge of who to connect you with yeah well but also if you want to stay in the state and pursue red-eye bass or some other freshwater species or saltwater
0: species they've got all that too. so and very knowledgeable folks
1: and um down
0: to earth so deep south outfitters yeah we'll put a link to them as well this is great i always love getting a connection there and so and then on the coffee line so what is your you know morning it's morning now what's your morning drink are you a coffee drinker or what, what do you got going
1: oh absolutely yeah i since grad school back in 2007 i think is when i started grad school um i started drinking coffee then and i don't think a morning's gone by
0: since <laughs> you're hour. addicted at least 20 to 30 ounces of coffee so you're addicted yeah what's your coffee of choice we talked about anglers but are you a? do you like a certain type of coffee
1: um i don't have a certain brand you know i've got two small kids and so
0: you know we have to budget right uh costs, and things like that at this point in our lives but so you're just as good with the like the Folgers versus the uh whatever whatever the brand
1: i, I wouldn't say Folgers but I'm not a brand loyal, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I do like dark roast coffee.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. Dark, that's good. Yeah, that's better for you, I think.
1: I can't drink like light roast or watery type.
0: I know. Yeah, the light roast has the, um, I mean, I guess it's everybody's taste, but yeah, it's got way more kind of, I don't know what the word is, like kind of organic, natural. Yeah. Like, yeah.
1: I need those complex, like bold flavors. Yep. Um, and so uh, essentially whatever is on sale is what I usually buy but it has to be a dark race.
0: It's got to be dark. All right. We got the dark in. And, and like I said, I'll find out. I can't remember the dark roast that anglers has, but I know they have one. Uh, it might be the muddler's blend. Um, but the Alabama. So just take us really quick. We're not going to go deep in this, but just around, we, you know, we talked about red eye bass. What other species, people in Alabama, you know, what are the top species? Do you think people are fishing for? Maybe we'll walk through the top, you know, few species. Sure. So, um, this is a, a great segue that
1: I guess you didn't know about. So I'm actually writing a book right now on fly fishing um, a fly fishing guide for Alabama what's that? Oh perfect. And so there's a lot of things that you can fish for. Of course, there's bass. You can fish for smallmouth bass in North Alabama. You can fish for red-eye bass and you know, central to northeast Alabama. You can fish for largemouth bass everywhere. In Alabama, We used to have shoal bass populations that have been extirpated, so we, we no longer have shoal bass populations. But uh, you can also fish for spotted bass, um, Alabama bass, which is a, a type of spotted bass. You know, those are, are kind of river specialists that get they're pretty big. You can also fish for numerous species of panfish, you know, shellcracker, bluegill, red-breasted sunfish, green sunfish, long sunfish. I mean, there's crappie. Anything you can imagine, we probably have it here. And then you can do some, you know, I would say your non typical game fish, you know, gar. Mm, uh, sure. mean pickerel, uh,
0: cart. God, yeah, you got it all. What what do you think is kind of the crazy you know, most unknown, craziest fish that you have that Alabama's maybe people, you know, maybe don't know about? I would say
1: probably the bowfin. Oh yeah, the bowfin. If I'm gonna go like, you know, the extreme like you know, toothy t- critter.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that is. That's cool. But I
1: still think that, you know, for a lot of people, it's going to be red eye bass. I mean, that's the right. fish that out was that not a lot of people know about. Just not as uh, extreme, I guess.
0: Right. Right. And the bowfin is, is an interesting fish. But well, maybe we'll leave the bowfin for another one. Are you, do you find yourself with these species that you just take it all in and you dig into all these other species and knowing, you know, all about them or do you keep it very narrowly focused on the ones that you're really working genetically on? Um,
1: it's changed. So, I mean, I've for the last decade or more, I've almost solely pursued red eye bass in, in the different species of red eye bass. It's just what I enjoy. But in trying to grow, you know, fly fishing in Alabama as a way to appreciate and help protect these many different water systems, that I've kind of expanded not only my message, but my own personal pursuits into some of these different fish. And so, I've, you know, in, in writing this book, I've traveled around Alabama and fished, um, you know, like I chain pickerel as an example, an absolute blast on the fly rod. I mean, it's very similar to pike or oh, musky, right. just not as big, but I mean, super aggressive predators, you can know, throw in streamers, uh, through these kind of tan stained little creeks, you know, in the, the well Delta of Alabama. Um, it's just, a, it's a really unique, way to fly fish for a species that most people wouldn't think about pursuing in Alabama. And then we do have the Gulf coast in Alabama as well. So, you know, that opens up a whole world of saltwater fishing. Um, Alabama's Gulf coast is part of this, what they refer to as the fertile crescent of fisheries in the Gulf coast, where there's, I mean, just bountiful you nursery grounds for multiple species. And so you can do inshore fish like redfish, flounder, spotted sea trout, all that kind of stuff, near shore, Jack Creval and Kobe
0: and the yeah you know, I mean really anything. Oh wow. Yeah, you got it. that's a cool thing, yeah. I, I always feel like as we work around these states and we haven't really been into Alabama, you know, too deep yet, you know, and but there's every state, right? You name it. There's going to be a bunch not just one, there's going to be a bunch of species and it feels like you know, that we've talked about this before, but that it's fly fishing, right, is evolving and it's evolving into this, like, you know, what's the hardest fish to catch? Do you guys, do you <laughs> find that? Are you seeing that out there where like, hey, people are just more and more red-eye bass is going to keep getting bigger and bigger?
1: I think, so red-eye bass has certainly been growing in the pursuit of red-eye bass, but I think the one thing it's doing is bringing more people into fly fishing because I think it's an easier entry into fly fishing, you know, there's not a lot of, there's not all the gear and the confusion yeah. stuff that trout fishing brings to a lot of people. right um, and so it, it's been a very easy way for people to kind of dip their toes into fly fishing. And then, and then once they're in fly fishing, I mean, some people, you know, they want big fish, so they're going to go pursue the saltwater fish, or they're going to try to go catch, you know, carp, or, you know, they want something that's going to really pull some drag. Some people, you know, really resonate with the little you know, intimate setting of red eye bass fly fishing in the the foothill streams. Some people just prefer to to go pan, you know, catch panfish, whatever panfish that may be. Other people have been really honed in and specific on like pursuing smallmouth on the fly and things like that. So I mean, it, the diverse fishery that we have here is kind of creating a diverse user base, which is kind of exciting because we all bring something a little bit different to the table. Um, and so there's there's been fly tires that have. That have popped up in Alabama that are nationally, you know, renowned for their abilities, and so, uh, you know, it's a growing sector of the sport, and particularly shining a light on the warm water fly fishing opportunities. I think that you know, larger companies are just now kind of starting to notice, like, hey, maybe we need to start marketing specifically to this group because warm water fly fishing isn't something that that trout anglers do when the waters get too warm for trout. I mean, there are people that really prefer to pursue these different warm water species. So I think it's good. I think there's a lot of change here and I think it's, you know, consistent with the change that's kind of growing in the sport as a whole. Um,
0: so that's exciting. Love it. love it. This is awesome. Well, I think we're definitely going to be staying in touch. Um, you know, the event uh, we have going at our co. you know, site where we have kind of all of our events and this one we have going is pretty awesome because I think I always try to focus on, you know, at least one conservation group and we're getting that in here. So we'll, we'll keep in touch with you. Let's do a couple. Give us a, a fun fact maybe on the species we haven't talked about today as we take it. And then anything else that we missed on red-eye bass you want to shout out to?
1: Sure. Uh, so fun fact, you know, we talked about where red-eye bass are natives, but they actually have been, they've been moved around. In the past. Um, we don't really know why, but there's a population of red eye bass in Arizona. Oh wow, there you go. Yeah, in California and Puerto Rico. Holy cow. We're in California. So I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this right.
0: It's like this the Stan Stanis loss. Oh yeah, Stanislaus. Right, right, right. Yep. Yeah, it's some of those foothill streams. Around Yosemite, I think, right? I think in that
1: area. Yeah, they purposely introduced red eye bass into waters that were too warm for trout but too cold for other bass species and they've they've kind of exploded there and they're eating you know the
0: native frogs and right yeah they're not doing yeah this is not a good thing
1: yeah they're the pest in that case and same thing in arizona
0: they were introduced into the upper verde river system
1: and um they've been eating a lot of the native you know minnows and things in those streams so again, you know, moving, moving things around is never a good
0: idea. Um, wow. and in this case, it happens to be my favorite fish that's causing the issues. Right. Well, maybe you need to make a trip out, uh, a group trip out there and, and take, you know, do some catching, catching and killing.
1: I did to Arizona. I actually did go out cause I did a, um, a collaboration with the university out there to, you know, I did the genetic work to confirm that that that's what was there because, um, Arizona game and fish had been Uh, Referring to them as smallmouth bass, and they're like, "Why do these never get big here?" And you know, like anyway. So we were like, "Well, they're not smallmouth bass; they're red eye bass." We had no idea how they got there, but they're there. Yeah, that was a cool experience fishing for them out there in a a desert environment with cacti everywhere and pronghorn lumping around.
0: What is the smallmouth bass distribution? That's one thing you see. They're kind of, seems like they're everywhere. What is the, do you know the historic, historically? Yeah, so
1: the, I mean, all of the bass species are east of the Mississippi. And so smallmouth bass kind of range, you know, the Midwest, like Wisconsin area down, I think to the the Tennessee river system, which is like the upper portion of Alabama.
0: Okay. Until it gets too warm. The waters get too warm down there.
1: Right. And so, but they, yeah, they have been like largemouth stopped everywhere uh, particularly out west. Yeah, oh well, yeah. yeah there's but there's a lot of issues, you know, obviously there, but
0: What about the um I get two more for you then we'll then we'll take it out of here. Um so uh podcast, uh music, uh, do you on the road trip, do you listen to any podcasts any music? What's that look like?
1: Um so <laughs> my wife actually hates traveling with me because I I prefer to listen to podcasts. There you go. Nice. <laughs> so I, I you know, I consume information that way but i also do enjoy music like when i lose my uh cell phone reception i'll start to play my music and so um yeah so i do a little bit of both
0: what's your if you had to look at your in your feed right now on your podcast what would be a, a one or two there that you're, you've been listening to you like
1: well obviously you know this podcast yeah. um, <laughs> there you go after learning about it uh i've been on the orbis podcast before oh, nice. so I, I listen to it pretty regularly Um, mainly just to see if anybody says anything snarky about my my red-eye bass um right but uh no it's a good podcast also like all the meat eater podcasts oh yeah you know that whole network of podcasts i listen to most of those um those are probably my top
0: yeah those are good good any other podcasts in non-outdoor uh related
1: no i only listen to outdoor stuff.
0: (laughs) there you go there you go love it love it all right good and what would be, you know, heading out of here, like a call to action? Like one thing somebody could take away like do today that you would tell them based on, you know, red eye bass or just in general, you know, conservation?
1: I think in general, just um, you know, an awareness that the black bass world is a very diverse world. It's not just largemouth bass and smallmouth bass and spotted bass. And within that, you know, world there's a lot of conservation issues and challenges with those different species especially those like red-eye bass that are kind of endemic to a, a small geographic range and so i think people just knowing about that is probably the biggest help at this point point. and then you know hopefully that'll grow into more advocacy and funding
0: to better understand these populations there you go this is awesome Well, I think the best uh, call to action would be to head to RedEyeBassFlyFishing.com and they can start there. And if they have questions, uh, getting involved in, you know, like you mentioned, the the river keepers, any of the groups you're working with is probably a great place. Would they be able to pick your brain, maybe send you a message or, or I guess on Instagram, right? RedEyeBassFlyFishing as well.
1: Yes. I'm pretty responsive to messages. I mean, obviously I would talk anyone's ear off about RedEyeBass. I probably won't tell you like all my
0: favorite, you know, stream um, access points. Right. right. Well, they got a book. You've got literally wrote the book on red-eye bass. So they could, they could buy that too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But no, I'm, I'm happy to talk with anyone that has questions. Perfect.
0: All right, Matt. Well, I think we'll leave it there until the next one. And uh, yeah, thanks for all the great work that you've been doing and excited to be working with you on this event we have going. And I'm sure, um, I mean, my goal always, when we start these kickoff events is to get on the water. So I don't know if it's going to happen next year, but um, I'm going to keep in touch with you and uh, hopefully it does. So thanks for all the uh, time today. Yep. No, thank you. I enjoyed it. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com. If you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you, check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.